You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads lead us through discovery out of the darkness into the light? I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, we go to Argentina, have a conversation with the author of The Oxford Brotherhood, Guillermo Martinez. After the break, another edition of Rory's Island with Rory Vesey. Um, this is what the Daily Mail, Daily Mail said about the Oxford Brotherhood. Unusual blend of murder most foul and mathematics most pure. A playful intellectual exercise. And Guillermo, welcome to the program. Larry Davidson here. Well, wonderful to talk to you. Thank you very much. So I want to delve a little bit into your background, and I'm curious about connections. Growing up, did you have any interest in listening to music? Did you ever play a musical instrument? Well, that was in my childhood, yes. I started to learn guitar um, at the school of music uh, and I tried that during 10 years but very soon I realized that I didn't have the musical ear however I did have in a sense a kind of musical uh, listening to the sound of prose uh, so I have a quite um, developed um, musical training in phrases and paragraphs and the cadence of uh, the prose you have a background in mathematics the reason why I pose that first question because I'm, I think music wires the brain going from some experience with one of my my daughter um, she was involved in music at a very young age, and as a student, she was very good in the math and sciences. So in terms of the wiring, did you think that helped you having exposure to music and would led you to your choice of, you know, focusing on mathematics? Well, I would say that um, chess is more related uh, to my interests in logic and mathematics and the way I explore um, writing. So I played chess quite a lot when I was a child. Uh, I went to tournaments. Uh, my first trip away was uh, to a chess tournament when I was 12 years old. So that was an experience that was um, uh, very important in my life in, in many senses. Then I I replace uh, chess by tennis. I play tennis okay. uh, many years as well. And tennis shows in some of my writings and my novels. But uh, the structure of chess is already a kind of mathematical structure, a kind of logical structure. And in chess, you have to anticipate um, little stories of the figures, little stories, um, where are they going, what will happen if, and if uh, you move that way or that other way. And that kind of uh, reasoning is very similar to the reasoning in math and in literature. So I, I'm fascinated by writers who are bilingual or multilingual. In your case, obviously, you speak a fair amount of languages, and you have a, a background in mathematics, which is also a language in its own right. How has this helped you in terms of developing the craft as a writer? 
Well, it was very hard uh, for me to learn English as a second language. You can see that my accent is not the best. <laughs> um, but um, I did learn the language of math, uh, and I am very grateful to life uh, because of that. Because um, in many senses, um, math is a different way of uh, looking at many events and ways uh, in the world um, it's a kind of um, different window to to look at life um, and i was not really uh, very good at math when i was in high school it was almost an accident that i ended um, studying math uh, but i am very glad uh, about having that experience in my life you wrote an article for Crime Reads, I think it was titled On the Long Tradition and Curious Effects of Introducing Real Life Literature into a Mystery Novel. I'm still reading it time and time again. It is a masterclass in terms of your thought process and who you reference. So I'm going to thank you off the top for that because... Thank you so much. You know, I'm very glad that someone read it. <laughs> so my question is, in terms of the essay, I think you quote, uh, quote, uh, Borges, is that correct in there? Yes, Borges, yes, Borges. true. About um, fiction in, in fiction, when fiction lives in fiction. So I'm going to take that a little bit further for you. How does that work for you in terms of crime fiction? into crime fiction? Well, as I tried to explain in that article, um, there are many literary purposes in when you include some literary reference uh, along the, the way you're writing. Um, for example, uh, since Crime fiction is a little, um, requires a kind of dry way of writing because you are handling facts, um, alibis, um, times, uh, money issues, and last wills, and things like that. You have to be very precise in your writing um, in several ways, and that informs your writing and convert it in a not very beautiful experience uh, regarding the prose. So when you insert a, ref a literary reference, you have the possibility of a different register, a different literary register, and that helps uh, to um, insufflate some other kind of life to, to your writing. That, that could be one of the possibilities. Um, the, the second one is um, that in some sense you can, um, when you include a literary reference, uh, there is a kind of trick going on that gives your novel um, uh, more, it gives more life uh, for the reader. It is as if um, the literary reference is the fiction, the book. Right. And what right. you are telling them is the real thing. So that is very interesting. That, uh, that works in a kind of unconscious way for the reader. But the reader feels that, okay, there are crime books, but now they are reading um, the real life going on. So my question is, 
how many audience do you, did you envision when you sat down to write this book? There is fans of crime fiction, but also it's very philosophical, and you raise and get into the world of mathematics. So I, I envision not just one audience for your book, but multi-audiences for your book. What did you hope to accomplish when you put this book out there, The Oxford Brotherhood? Well, thank you so much. Yes, um, what I try to do is to insert myself in a kind of uh, not very long tradition of um, crime, uh, philosophical crime novels. So they are crime novels, and I, I pay a lot of attention trying to, you know, uh, tie the knots and get everything uh, done in the end. Um, uh, so the reader, the, the usual crime fiction reader, um, could enjoy a crime novel. That, right. that would be one level. And the second level uh, has to do with uh, what I call um, the philosophical or the theoretical um, thread. So I, I like very much um, to combine this kind of different levels um, and to show um, some of the logical paradoxes that arise uh, when you think about um, issues that seem familiar to everybody, but they are not so familiar uh, if you stop to think uh, carefully about them. This is the podcast, Awful Periscope. We're talking about the book, The Oxford Brotherhood with Guillermo Martinez. So you said earlier in this conversation, you have a background in chess. In terms of writing this book, in my mind, it's kind of a puzzle, but it's also listening to you. You're moving the chess pieces on the board and you're keeping us kind of guessing. It's, it's, I don't want to say it's Agatha Christie who done it, but it certainly is who done it. Were you, was that in mind when you uh, said you 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 name uh, one of the authors that I admire most when I was a teenager? So I read most of her novels. Agatha uh, Christie is still for me a reference, and um, in both senses, as um, for her mastery in imagining different. Um, possibilities to this puzzle of crime solving so that that is one of uh, her achievements but also for inserting uh, literature into her novels through constant reference to child rhymes um, or to shakespeare masterpieces um, there are many references to uh, shakespeare in, in agatha christie's novels and they work very well so um, both of those uh, lessons um, i try to apply in my my own novels so I want to share this observation I took away from the book, and I'm going to, I'm hopefully I'm quoting it accurately. The perfect crime is not the one that remains unsolved, but is the one solved with the wrong culprit. What were you thinking about that? Well, because if um, crime uh, remains open, it is always like an um, open question. Um, and that um, this defies, that challenges the human minds. Um, so people will go once and again trying to guess what happened, really. Instead, if a crime is solved uh, with a wrong culprit, um, 
people get the the feeling well that 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 case is uh, shut down, is closed uh, forever. Uh, therefore, they don't um, investigate it anymore. So uh, I would say that if you want to make a perfect crime, you have to perform the crime, to do the crime, and also try to, to get an innocent uh, culprate. <laughs> so let's, let's uh, delve into the title of the book, The Oxford Brotherhood. And I was thinking of all these uh, clubs that get together, Sherlock Holmes clubs trying to solve crimes when they get together. It's not necessarily that, but it has some echoes for me of that. So in the title of your book, The Oxford Brotherhood, what was that? What is that? Well, that title was chosen by my editor. Uh, I was not totally happy with this translation. The original title is um, the Alice's Murders. Um, and we suggest also to him um, the Wonderland Murders. Right. Because, <clears throat> in fact, um, for the English uh, edition, I would prefer uh, the Wonderland Murders because that is the idea, the key idea in the book. The, the crimes resemble, in some sense, um, death that uh, happened uh, in, the, in Alice's book um, by Lewis Carroll. But the Oxford Brotherhood refers to a brotherhood of biographers of Lewis Carroll, um, the little rivalities, um, uh, quarrels inside the brotherhood, um, and the fact that there are some kind of strange incidents and murders um, and certain photographs of little girls that um, appear um, with, with each um, death. And this is, of course, related with... Um, the very polemic way in which uh, Lewis Carroll took photographs uh, to little children. So let's reset for a minute. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. My guest, Guillermo Martinez, is a doctor of mathematical sciences and a writer. His first novel, The Oxford Murders, has sold over, congratulations, 400,000 mm -hmm. copies worldwide and made into a film starring Elijah Wood and John Hart. So let's explore Lewis Carroll. That's his written, that's the name he wrote under. But how much of, of the real Lewis Carroll is in the book and how much is your imagination to set up the story? Well, that's a very important question. Um, I work uh, during the writing of the novel, I work uh, in two separate sides. Um, everything that is written about Lewis Carroll's life um, comes from serious biographies that I read uh, before um, the writing of the novel. So everything I am saying there is backed by documents, uh, books. Um, I didn't invent anything of that. So um, the biographic part of the novel is uh, reliable in that sense. Uh, and everything that has to do with the Oxford Brotherhood is, uh, and the murders is invented. Um, but the, um, the way I imagine the characters of, the, of this brotherhood um, 
comes from the reading of this biography. So I I don't know any one of these biographers. Right. But I try to imagine um, eccentric people um, emerging from those books. Uh, so the opinions they give uh, from time to time about uh, Lewis Carroll are in some sense uh, the kind of opinions you will find in the biographies. But the characters are, all of them are invented. There is one of them, uh, which, which I call Raymond Martin, who I imagine as the mixing of um, two well-known uh, mathematicians. One is Martin Garner, uh, Probably you you know him because of his books about uh, mathematics and magic, um, riddles and things like that. The other one is Raymond Smullyan. So Martin Garden and Raymond Smullyan, uh, I uh, mixed them and I got um, Raymond Martin. Since you have a background, a very strong background in mathematics, I don't know if you ever seen the film called Goodwill Hunting starring Matt Damon and Robin yes. Williams. And yes, Robin indeed. Williams. Uh, and, yes, sure. And, and the reason why I'm going to ask this question is because the character of Matt Damon is a mathematical genius working as a janitor, and they see yes. stuff on the board, and then they oh, pull yeah. him in because they think they've got, they got the one. And the question I wonder about is at what point do mathematical geniuses stop having insights and then just rest in, on their laurels. Is there, is there an age where you, there's a window where you're really terrific in terms of exploring and discovering, and after that window closes, you've got a great reputation, but you're no longer looking at the problems that seem to be unsolvable? Well, there are two things involved in what you are saying. Uh, first of all, um, you need to know something of the language um, to have the possibility of solving problems. Uh, I, I found a little um, unbelievable that the scene when Matt Damon solves uh, the, the problem in the blackboard. Because um, you need to be familiar with the language and the concepts involved. And that um, requires uh, some learning, some deep learning of uh, the math involved. Um, but uh, uh, for the core of your question, I think that Math is better in general in youth. Um, for example, the Fields Medal uh, is given to a um, mathematician below, uh, below uh, 40. Because what you need is a, a deep uh, concentration, a deep focus, a fresh insight in, in some area, and then what happens in general is that you exhaust uh, the field you are thinking about. <clears throat> and there are many few mathematicians that could uh, jump from one field to another um, in their lives. Um, so in general, what happens is that uh, a mathematician um, can get a breakthrough in his field can expand the field, solve the main problems, um, 
after that world, uh, the, the problems that remains are often really difficult. Um, his life is not enough to solve them. And he cannot uh, go so easily to some other field because he has invested a lot of time and work and thinking on those, on his subjects. Um, I, I, would th- I would say that uh, that could explain uh, the, the expiration of mathematicians. Right. Many of them also are kind of burnt out. Uh, they right. quit math and they devote to... Um, violin, uh, to um, play writing, to, um, I don't know, to some other uh, stuff. So I want to do now is I want to dip my tone to the, into the water, metaphorically speaking, and mention one character because this character is a researcher, Kristen Hill, and this, she discovers something. And what she discovers kind of sets the whole narrative into play. What, if you, as much as you want to tell us, because I don't want to give the book away, but she discovers something about a missing page. Is that correct? Yes, and uh, that is also real. So um, in 1994, um, a young uh, playwright, uh, Caroline Leach, went to um, Lewis Carroll's museum, um, and she discovered by chance... Um, um, a paper that says uh, cut pages of the diaries. Um, she found there some annotations uh, that were scribbled in a piece of paper with the essential of the missing pages of uh, Lewis Carroll diaries. So um, the grand um, daughters of Lewis Carroll um, had cut the, some pages of his diary, and before throwing them away, they wrote a single sentence with the, the, the main subject of each of the cut pages. Uh, and that was uh, her discovery. Uh, um, she wrote then a, a book. Um, she had some kind of um, academic discussions about uh, her discovery. And that was the basis of my novel, of course. Now, you have another character in the book called G was an Argentinian student at Oxford. Now, Mm -hmm. are you putting yourself at all (laughs) with G into the story? Well, this is the character I had in my previous novel, The Oxford Murders. Um, When I went to study in Oxford, uh, I was 30 years old. So my character is much younger. My character is not married as I was that time. My character could uh, play tennis with uh, young, wonderful girls. so it is not me. It is uh, what I would like to be at that time, maybe. Or <laughs> it is a projection, as as always. Um, but of course, many of the things I learned and I saw there, many of the little observations um, were made by, by me while I was uh, studying in Oxford. 
So we call that you're putting your alter ego into the story. So that's fine. You know, you kind of makes it more refreshing. You know, a little bit of part of you shows up in the books that you create. There's another character that I really like, Professor Arthur Seldom. And I'll tell you why. Because, yes. because it's a, there was this TV show that I saw originally came from Belgium and then went to English TV, and it's called Professor T. He's a professor at Cambridge, and he's mm. very quirky, but he's brought in to solve crimes from a former student. And I think the professor you write about is quirky, very, <laughs> very, very intelligent, and he's trying to solve these murders. He's not trying to solve. That, that's one main difference. In fact, uh, he, my character, Arthur Seldom, is always reluctant to put himself uh, in the way of crimes. He tries to, to not solve anything. He wants to be uh, on the blackboard and, and not, uh, not far beyond the, the blackboard because he is afraid of real life and the, the ways in which things um, can be complicated and can turn to, can, can have some bad turns in real life. Uh, so one of the characteristics of my character is that uh, he's re really reluctant to, to mess with um, the crimes, but uh, his discipline, uh, the young Argentinian guy, in some sense, uh, pushes him to <laughs> to that uh, to those problems. Um, I had a kind of a vague um, mix for that character. He's in part. Uh, in, in, in the patients, uh, he's like my advisor in Argentina. Okay. So right. I will go to my advisor and will tell him several theories and conjectures and, uh, and he will listen to me patiently. So the, um, for the aspect, um, it resum he resembles um, um, a well-known uh, logician in, that I met in, in Oxford. Um, his name is uh, Angus McIntyre. Um, so his Scottish ascendance, I, I got it from, he, from him. Uh, in this country, there's a big discussion about, I hate to say it's pedophilia. And in, in the context of Lewis Carroll and the photographs, which are very few in terms of how many photographs he took over his photographic career, they're relatively small, but this issue kind of comes up in the story. So how did you handle it? Because I came across this observation, another one, uh, bear with me. This is my own thoughts. How different is loving a child from a parent's point of view and loving a child outside the family circle? Because then you kind of get into the issue, who has the right to love a child and who is kind of verboten in terms of how it's seen? Well, uh, that is why I created the character of um, of the mathematician in the in the Brotherhood that um, does portraits of uh, little girls. 
He's uh, in a kind of platonic love uh, with these uh, girls. He just uh, draw the, the portraits. Um, he never thinks about touching them or assaulting them in, in any sense. Um, and I thought that was um, an interesting paradox. Uh, would you forbid um, a person to love uh, children if uh, he just wants to admire them uh, in, in the sense that they were admired in, in those times as well? No, uh, I, th I think that is the interesting issue, that the, the, the most interesting issue, because we are not sure about what uh, Carol really did with children, but we are sure that he loved them in the sense uh, that they amused them, that he would have a great time with them, he would tell them jokes. Um, so should that be forbidden um, if he's not harming them in any way? Uh, I think that's a kind of... Um, um, question of human nature that has to be solved, and it is solved in different ways, um, in different times. You you led me into my next question, and it's in terms of different times, the mores. So the mores of his time may not have been the same, the mores of the time of the Brotherhood. So when you're looking through this lens and researching about what Lewis Carroll did or did not do, don't you have to factor in the time frames that he was living in, what was acceptable and what was not? Well, serious researchers always have that in mind. If you are a serious researcher, you cannot judge uh, Luis Carroll as if he were born in our times. Of course, there, there are a lot of excuses, if you want. Still, the fact remains um, because you have seen, uh, I'm sure, some of uh, his photographs, and they are really disturbing in many senses. So, um, but suppose that he, he, he was just uh, okay with children, and he just wanted uh, to laugh with them and to spend time with them, and, at that, at those times, that was uh, well regarded. Okay? So that there was there was no problem that an, an adult person could go with some children and to the, uh, a promenade in the river. It was perfectly okay. And in our times, that is uh, forbidden in many senses. We're about the back end of the first segment for the podcast Artful Periscope. So what I like to do is. The question I always pose, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? No, it was a wonderful interview since you read uh, my novel with um, uh, attention. Um, uh, so I, I, I wouldn't say anything was um, missing. Uh, I... I just would say uh, some other thing that um, a friend of mine told me after reading the novel, and he said to me, it is a crime novel, but it is also, uh, in some sense, also a ghost story, because there are the characters 
of the crime setting and the ghost of Lewis Carroll. So in some sense, uh, you are invoking a ghost uh, in your story as well. My guest is Miguelmo Martinez. The book is called The Oxford Brotherhood. It's been a pleasure and honor to speak to you. Thank you so much for setting some time. Well, thank you so much for bringing me with such attention. Thank you. After the break, another edition of Rory's Island with Rory Bessie. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Right now, another edition of Rory's Island with Rory Messy. Thank you, Larry. Uh, Larry Davidson posed a question to me a few weeks ago. He said, where is it that you like to read? And immediately my mind went back to when I was a teenager and I would spend my summers on Shelter Island. I imagined myself to be Joe March from Little Women. That's who I wanted to be. And when my father taught me how to get up in the tree, in a big maple tree, I figured out how to get up there with my book. And I would go up there with my book and I would read and it was wonderful. Of course, I couldn't get in that position today, but I loved being up there out in the air where nobody could disturb me. So if my mother came back from the grocery store, she never thought to look up and I was just in the tree reading away and then I also started doing some journaling up there, but that was probably my all-time favorite place to read. Because for me, I've always found being involved in a book is very settling to my life. There's other things I like to do to relieve stress, like singing and riding horses. But if you're under stress, you can't always just hop on a horse and start singing. But when you're in the middle of a book, either a great fiction or a really interesting nonfiction or a book of poetry that you're determined to read one poem a day, it settles you like the, like the rudder of a sailboat. It just adds something to your whole day, or at least it does for me, that just keeps me going. Now, I would say my problem is today, you know, here we are in 2022 with the phones and the iPad, and as I've gotten older, getting too comfortable leads me to fall asleep even reading the best book. So I try and make a time of the day where I sit down in a chair, not necessarily the most comfortable chair, and open that book. And I will fight with myself because, you know, when you have an extra 10 minutes, you're waiting someplace, or for us, when you're on the ferry, leaving Shelter Island or coming back to it, I always carry books with me. And I usually have two or three, depending on what I feel like reading, I'll have one. But the problem is, I will go to check my phone, go to check my email. So now I fight with myself. No, put on the glasses, open the book. And even if I read for just that three-minute ferry ride, I'm really happy reading. And it, it does something for my day, no matter what. And then if there's one other thing I want to add. I'm going to go back to when you're a child and reading. If you heard my previous podcast or my commentary, you know that I have an interest in Afghanistan. And recently a man died in California at age 83, and his name was Parwiz Kazi Saeed. And he was a footnote writer, and he wrote books for young adults, mostly police action, detective stories, 
an occasional love story thrown in. And when he passed away, a lot of people who are now in their late 30s, early 40s, young Afghan, mostly men, wrote that they had such great memories of reading his books under the covers with a kerosene light because this was during the Taliban's first government rule, which was in 96 to 2001. And there, there was no pleasure reading. There were school books, but there was no entertainment books. There was no movies. There was no music for these children. So this was such a light in their life to be able to read his detective stories and every once in a while him throwing in a love story. And I thought that, wow, Here's an author, nobody knows his name, nobody's heard of his books, but what a great legacy to leave behind that these teenagers, boys enjoyed his work during a time when they really weren't getting to read at all. So I do kind of consider reading to be almost a prayerful experience. And I just hope that the bookstores continue to sell real actual books so that everyone can find their spot and sit down and enjoy a read every day. I did not know what you were going to say, and this came, this came out to be so timely. I have in front of me, the audience can't see it, but it was in uh, the Sunday Times, and the title says, The City That Never Sleeps Always Reads, New Yorkers Escape the Clamor by Getting Lost in a Book. These pictures from our archives have a timeless quality. So New York Times and you think a lot. So before we let you go, I want you to kind of explain your thought process when you sit down to do an edition of Rory's Island. What do you go through? Well, like I said, when you asked me that, you were I was lucky enough to have you pose me a good question. So my mind just automatically went to, like I said, the memory of reading Little Women. Uh, but then I sit down and I just, I think about it during the day. And then at some point, I say, okay, I, I like where this is going. And then I sit down and I write myself a few notes. And then the day before, I make sure that it's all organized and I've said everything that I want to say. And that's pretty much how I've been doing it. Rory, always a pleasure. I want to thank my first guest, the author of the Oxford Brotherhood, Guillermo Martinez. And once again, another edition of Rory's Island, Rory Vesey. Before we go, I want to leave you with this Kind of random thoughts and observations. Uh, Real Sports with Brian Gumbel is a sports magazine show, but it's much more than that. It's one of the best shows on TV. It's on HBO. And he had a segment recently where he did a whole thing about a former drug dealer in D.C. who turned his life around and started getting involved with cleaning up the rivers in his neighborhood in terms of conservation. And then he got involved with working with Falcons. And this is the observation that, that struck me that this man said who turned his life around through conservation and working with animals, just like Rory does in her life. And he says, we die twice. The first time was when our physical body gives out. The second time is when our name is said for the last time. I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast 
on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisofaro, sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. To her kitchen chair, she brought